Genesis chapter 43. We are in the thick of things in our study through the life of Joseph in the final quarter of the book of Genesis. Joseph is the prime minister of Egypt. He's running the country on Pharaoh's behalf. He is overseeing the only food supply in the world as the earth is in the midst of a catastrophic famine that the Lord revealed to Joseph would last a total of seven years. And wouldn't you know it, this famine has brought Joseph's 10 half-brothers to Egypt in search of grain. The same 10 half-brothers who sold Joseph into slavery over 20 years earlier and who undoubtedly think he's dead. They end up before Joseph. He recognizes them, but they do not recognize him. And without revealing himself, he begins to test and examine them to see if they've changed at all in these past 20 years. In our last study, we saw them reach the place of guilt, the place where they began to realize that negative things were happening to them because of what they had done to Joseph all those years ago, but they hadn't yet reached the place of true repentance, sincere regret over what they did. Right now they just know they're guilty and they don't like the consequences that are coming down on them. After being questioned and accused by Joseph, he sent them back home with bags full of grain, but he he snuck their payment, their money, back into their bags. Why? Because Joseph is a prophetic picture of Jesus. His 10 half-brothers are a prophetic picture of the Jewish people And bread or grain is a picture of salvation, and you can't buy salvation from Jesus. It's a gift. However, this act of generosity terrified the brothers when they discovered it, because it looked like they had robbed the prime minister of Egypt of this grain. And not only that, but Joseph accused the brothers of being spies and demanded that they prove that they really were who they said they were by bringing the younger brother that they had mentioned, Benjamin, back to Egypt. Joseph said, let's see if your story's true. Go get this other brother you told me about. Benjamin was Joseph's only full brother and Joseph was eager to see him again. And so he threw Simeon, one of his half-brothers, in prison as a security deposit while the other brothers went back with instructions to bring Benjamin back to Egypt in order to free Simeon. And as we close chapter 42, Jacob, the father of all of them, was refusing to let his sons take Benjamin to Egypt, fearing Benjamin's fate would end up the same as Joseph, whom he thought was dead. And seeing what seemed to be everything around him going wrong, Jacob famously exclaimed, all these things are against me, forgetting that God is always doing something good. Even in the darkest situation, if you belong to God, then he's doing something good. He just is because that's just who he is. You can bet your life on it. Today we're going to inch closer to the incredible moment when it all becomes clear what the good was that God was doing in and through all of this mess. The good that God was working for Jacob and his family as this incredible story continues to unfold. Chapter 43, verse 1, there's going to be a lot of narrative, a lot of story today. That's why there's not a lot of fill-in. So if the Lord puts something on your heart, make a note of it in all that glorious space on your outline. Verse 1, now the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Jacob said to his boys, go back, buy us a little food. 
As the food begins to, to run out again, Jacob realizes they gotta do something and Judah's gonna bring up the one little problem with Jacob's request that they go get more food. Verse three, but Judah spoke to him saying, the man, he's referring to Joseph, even though he didn't know it was Joseph, and indeed Joseph was the man. The man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. That brother, as we mentioned earlier, is Benjamin. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send us down there without Ben, we're as good as dead, dad. We're not going to do it. Verse 6, and Israel, which is Jacob, said, why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? Jacob says, why did you idiots even have to mention that you had a younger brother? None of this would have happened if you just had kept your big mouth shut. He's trying to avoid making this heart-wrenching decision to either let his family starve or risk losing his other favorite son, his most treasured possession. Verse seven, but they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And, and we told him according to these words, could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? He was asking pointed questions about the family, dad. We were scared, he had us on the spot. There's, there's no way we could have known that he would demand we bring Benjamin to him. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned the second time. So Judah same one who said this last week, the same one who came up with the idea to sell Joseph into slavery all those years ago, says, Dad, it's obvious what we need to do. There's not really any decision to make. There are no options. I'll take personal responsibility for Benny's well-being. Verse 11, and their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. I would imagine that these are, are dried fruits and things like dates which can still grow in an arid area and I would imagine they didn't have very many of them. If they did, they wouldn't be starving to death and they wouldn't be risking Benjamin's life by returning to Egypt to get more food. Well, Jacob tells his boys, take, take these semi-exotic foods and sweets as gifts for the prime minister of Egypt. Verse 12, Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise, go back to the man and may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother, that's Simeon, and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. We've got no choice here. Let's try and earn some favor with the ruler of Egypt and and hope for the best, verse 15. So the men took that present and Benjamin and they took double money in their hand and arose and went down to Egypt and they stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. So Joseph sees them, doesn't say a word to them. He just looks at his steward and says, tell them I'll have them over for lunch. Verse 18, 
Now the men, the brothers, were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house and they said, it's because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may make a case against us and, and seize us and take us as slaves with our donkeys. They're thinking, this is bad. We're just here to buy some more grain and now we're being invited to the prime minister's house. This is a setup. We're gonna show up for lunch and he's gonna imprison us as slaves because he thinks we stole the grain last time. But, but they know they've got no choice. They just gotta go along with it. Verse 19, when they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, oh, oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks, and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in our hand, and we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. They're saying, please, please, before we go in the house, like, Whatever you're about to do, you, you don't need to do it. You just got to know. We have no idea what happened last time. Look, look, we brought the money back and, and even more money just to make up for it. Please, please, just, just be kind. Verse 23, but he, the steward, said, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. They must have been thinking at this point, what? What in the world is going on? You want to talk about stress. Now they're thinking, what? why did he give us the grain for free last time? If he's not mad at us, what are we doing at his house for lunch? What is going on? And it's interesting just to note that Joseph had raised his steward, sort of the, the manager of his household, to be a believer, if you'll notice that. He was acquainted with the God of Joseph and the God of his father Jacob, and he would have been an Egyptian. Verse 24, so the man brought the men into Joseph's home and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Once again, his brothers are acting out the dream that they mocked him and scorned him for sharing all those years ago back in Hebron. Verse 27, then he asked them about their well-being and said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, his full brother, and said, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother, so Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. He's just overwhelmed at seeing his baby brother, Benjamin, that he has, he has to leave the room and he goes and weeps in his bedroom, seeing that Benjamin is alive and well and standing there before him. Verse 31, then he washed his face and came out and he restrained himself and said, serve the bread. So they set him a place by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. So they sat at a different table to Joseph because it was just a, a prejudice of the day in Egypt. They wouldn't eat with Hebrews, and so Joseph doesn't want to reveal his identity to them just yet, so he goes along with the cultural custom. Verse 33, and they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Joseph has 
created place settings for each of them. There's a specific place for each of them to sit and it's in birth order. And in our head, like, we don't think that's hard because we think of the children's Bible and it's like, oh, you're just going tallest to shortest, obviously. And that, that's not how it worked. These were all grown men and this was a culture where they all would have been growing out their beards for their whole life. So telling them apart by age, 10 brothers who were all born within a couple of years of each other pretty much would not have been an easy, simple, or obvious task at all. There would have been no way to do it. And that's why they're absolutely astonished when they realize that they've been seated in birth order and they can't figure out what in the world is going on. Then he took servings to them from before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. Something going on here. Joseph is, he's not just saying, I like Benjamin more. It's not what's going on. He's He's testing them. You'll recall that they had hated him all those years ago back when he was a teenager for being the favorite son of their father, Jacob. So what he does is he gives Benjamin, the remaining or so they thought youngest son in the family, the current favorite son, he gives Benjamin five times more than all of them because he wants to see how they're going to react. Will there be jealousy? Will there be the same bitterness toward Benjamin that there was toward Joseph all those years ago. And this is a good test because as we've shared before, it's easier to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. It's easier to comfort those who are grieving than to celebrate with those who are prospering. And the reason is that when I'm comforting someone who's grieving or weeping with them, part of me is thinking, I'm so glad this isn't happening to me. But when someone is rejoicing and prospering, part of me is thinking, I wish that was happening to me. And that's why this is a good, good test to see, have they really changed? Are they jealous? Are they bitter towards their baby brother? For you and I, here's why this matters. Make a note of this. When we understand how much we've been blessed by Jesus, we're able to rejoice with others who are experiencing blessings. When we understand how much we've been blessed by Jesus, eternally and in the here and now, then we're able to rejoice with others who are experiencing blessings. When we understand all the Lord has done for us and given to us, we won't be jealous or covetous or bitter when we see other people being blessed. Because that's what's going on when we, when we look at someone and say, well, how come God gave them the gift of money? I tithe. Or we say, well, how come they got that promotion? I work hard. Or we say, well, how come his wife is so good looking? I'm better looking than him anyway. How does that happen? What's really going on is we don't understand how much we've been blessed by the Lord. And part of us probably thinks that the blessings we receive from the Lord we kind of deserved. But when we understand how the Lord has blessed us in ways that we do not deserve, then we understand that when we look at the ways other people are blessed, everyone who belongs to Jesus has been blessed so extravagantly, so extravagantly. We're talking about some people who've been blessed a teeny tiny extravagantly more or a teeny tiny extravagantly less, but everyone's been blessed extravagantly in and through Jesus. And so it's so important that we make sure that we are good at rejoicing with those who rejoice. 
that we're happy for other believers who do well and are being blessed in any area of life. It's an indicator of Christian maturity. And that's why it's good news when we read next, so they drank and were merry with him, with Joseph. Benjamin being favored doesn't bother the other brothers at all. Doesn't bother them at all. And Joseph would have been thinking, well maybe they have changed. Maybe they really have changed. But he's not done testing them just yet. We'll keep going into the next chapter, chapter 44. And he commanded the steward of his house saying, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. So he's gonna do the same thing again. He's gonna put the money back into each man's sacks without them knowing. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. Now this cup, this cup is no ordinary cup. It's not like Joseph's favorite beer mug or something like that, it's a special cup. It was a cup that signified Joseph's power and position. It was literally royal property, like a king's crown of that sort of level. And as we shall see, it was called a divining cup. You're gonna learn a word tonight. A divining cup was for practicing something called hydromancy, hydromancy. So just as to this day, uh, there are people in parts of the East who would ascribe to the idea of being able to read the future through tea leaves, you've probably heard of that idea and belief. In Egypt in this time, what they would do is they would put in uh, flakes of gold or silver or precious stones and swirl them around in different liquids in this divining cup and then observe their behavior and, and believe that from the way they acted they could somehow divine the future, which, they obviously couldn't. Now I'm gonna to suggest to you that this cup was probably given to Joseph, and while it was given to him, I will suggest to you that he, he doesn't use it for that. We've seen repeatedly that he relies on the Lord. We've seen him essentially belittle all other gods as powerless, and we've seen him credit the Lord for his ability to do things like interpret dreams. So there's no way that Joseph is gonna start using this divining cup and claiming that this is what's giving him profound insight. Additionally, Leviticus 19.26 specifically lists divination as a sin, and Joseph, as a picture of Jesus in the text, would not have had anything to do with that sort of thing. Silver is also often linked to redemption in the scriptures and it would have also hinted at what the brothers had done in selling Joseph as a slave for 20 pieces of silver. Verse three, as soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. When they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, get up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? You've done evil in so doing. So Joseph is still hiding his identity from his brothers and he's orchestrated this catastrophe that's gonna come upon them. So he overtook them and he spoke to them these same words and they said to him, why does my Lord say these words? Well, far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Do you think we're completely insane? We would never do that. We can't believe things actually worked out after what happened last time. We would never do this. They think they're innocent, which is why they say to Joseph's guy, with whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. This is literally exactly what Joseph wanted to have happen. It's incredible. Verse 10, and he said, now also let it be according to your words. 
He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched, the steward did. And just for dramatic effect, he began with the oldest and left off or finished with the youngest. This guy is cold. He knows exactly where it is because Joseph has told him where it's going to be, but he still builds the tension by starting with the oldest and eliminating them. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Can you imagine the absolute horror that would have come upon the brothers, the dread. This is an absolute catastrophe. This is the worst fear. This is the scenario that will send their father to the grave in grief when he hears about it. Which is why in verse 13 we read, then they tore their clothes, that classic Middle Eastern demonstration of grief, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city, back to Egypt. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there. And they fell before him on the ground, and Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? He's totally hamming it up, pretending that, you know, the spirits told him what had happened, that he didn't plan this whole thing. This is where the true repentance begins unfolding in the hearts of Joseph's brothers. True repentance. There's no more blaming this on bad luck or portraying themselves as good men who are being unfairly treated by circumstance. This is where the real repentance starts. Verse 16, then Judah said, and I would underline this whole bit here, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? There's nothing we can say. There's no explanation we can give. There's, there's no way we can call ourselves innocent. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. God's found out our sin. Does he say you have found out the iniquity of Benjamin? No, no, no. He says God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Judah says this has nothing to do with Benjamin or even you, Mr. Prime Minister. This is happening to us because God is dealing with us. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. He's saying we, we deserve our fate. I, I've got nothing to say. God is dealing with us. You can literally hear the change in Judah's heart in his answer to Joseph. Verse 17, but he, Joseph, said, oh, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. So Joseph ups the ante in his testing even further, and he says, well, I don't need to make you all slaves. I only have beef with the one who stole from me, Benjamin. He'll stay as my slave, but the rest of you are free to go. Do you see the setup? The setup is, will they forsake Benjamin? Will they let Benjamin also end up a slave in Egypt? Will they turn their backs on him at the chance to go free themselves? This is the ultimate test. Verse 18, an incredible answer. Then Judah came near to him and said, Oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing and do not let your anger burn against your servant for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. 
His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And my father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me. And I said, surely he is torn to pieces and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave for your servant speaking of himself, became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord. And let the lad go up with his brothers, for how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? Judah's doing his best to keep his word to his father. The promise he made to Jacob to bring Benjamin back safe and sound. Judah, the one who came up with the idea of selling Joseph into slavery in Egypt, has been so changed by all these trials, all these tests, all these circumstances, all these catastrophes that have been coming upon him at Joseph's hand. He's been so changed by all that that he now says, please let me stay as your slave and and let Benjamin go back home with my brothers. Judah and indeed all of Joseph's half-brothers are not who they were. They're not who they were. These trials, this famine, these tests have brought about a, a sea change in their hearts. This is what the Lord will do in the hearts of the Jewish people through the great tribulation. That's what all of this is a picture of. Jesus will be the orchestrator of the great tribulation ultimately. And its purpose will not be revenge or the punishment of the Jews, but rather to create circumstances that will change the condition of their hearts and bring them to repentance. And as we see in this story, even in the great tribulation, even amidst suffering, Jesus will be providing for his people, watching over his people, reaching out to his people. Why? Because repentance is what leads to restoration, the restoration of broken relationship between Jesus and the Jewish people. And I wanna share with you just the first verse of the next chapter, chapter 45, to give you a sneak preview of where we're gonna be going in our next study. The next chapter begins, then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He empties the room, just him and his brothers, and he tells them who he is. That's where all of this has been going. That's what all of this was for. That's what all of it was about, to get them to that place. So would you write this down? 
Confession and repentance bring restoration when we fractured our relationship with the Lord by embracing sin. Confession and repentance bring restoration when we fractured our relationship with the Lord by embracing sin. Joseph had long ago forgiven his brothers. He had been loving his brothers for a long time, yet their relationship was fractured and it was in need of healing. Joseph was offering what was needed from his side. He was offering forgiveness, but there could not be restoration in the relationship until the brothers offered what was needed from their side. Repentance, not just words of regret, not just regretting that what they've done is causing consequences to come upon them, but a genuine change of heart, regret and grief over what they did to Joseph. God's relationship with the Jewish people will likewise be restored. The Jewish people will repent, they will look to Jesus and he will receive him and that relationship will be restored. There's gotta be forgiveness from one side and there's gotta be genuine repentance from the other. When you have those two things, they come together to create restoration in a broken relationship. And I'll just say, man, put yourself in the shoes of Joseph's half-brothers at that moment of revelation. They must have been absolutely shocked, wondered if they were dreaming. Then they must have been profoundly confused, probably all of this going on at the same time, And then they would have been terrified, right? Absolutely terrified as they wonder what happens next. What happens next? It's me, Joseph. I'm going to kill you all slowly. They had no idea what was going to happen next. And on that perfectly executed cliffhanger, we're going to end our study in the text for today. So what can we learn from today's study? I wanna suggest that we should learn the lesson that repentance looks like this. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servant. Here I am, my Lord's slave. That's what repentance looks like. Repentance is when you stop blaming your sin and your sinful choices on other people. They made me do it. They brought that out of me. They provoked me. Repentance is when you stop blaming circumstance. Well, you don't know what my family is like. Well, you don't know what a tough deal I've had at my place of work. You don't know the wrong that was done to me. Repentance is when you own it and say, what can I say? Lord, I just just sinned. I sinned because my flesh is, is wicked. It wants to do evil things, and I chose to do it. I got no excuse. You know it, Lord. You know what I've done. You know everything. I just need your grace. When you know there's sin in your life that you're holding on to, and you belong to God, then his word promises, hear me on this, his word promises he'll deal with you, and he'll deal with me. He'll discipline you, he'll discipline me because he loves us too much to let us keep going down a path that will lead to destruction in our life and relationships. Proverbs three says, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. I was thinking about that verse this week and and just think, you know, even 
At my gym, one of the things we do is we do lifting. We lift some decently heavy weights. And here's the thing about lifting. You do it wrong. You can destroy your back. You can just destroy your back. And that's what sin is like. We say, well, well, I don't like that word, that God's going to discipline me. It's like you're bending over, picking up this huge weight, and your back is arched over, and you're pulling. You're going to throw your back out, and it's going to hurt. You're going to be taken out of commission. You're going to be in pain for a long time. And God is coming up beside you saying, let's let's get that form right so you don't hurt yourself. And you're like, don't tell me what to do. Stay out of my life. I've got this. I'm fine. God said, you're going to hurt yourself, you idiot. Do it right. Do it right, and then everything will be fine. Oh, stay out of it, Lord. And if you're in that place of holding on to sin while, while things in your life just get more and more difficult, I'm always astounded at how we do this. Like, I know we've all done this. You, you've looked at someone you care about, someone you know, and you're just thinking, how can you not see this? Like everything in your life just keeps getting worse. You can't get a break. And yet you're like, well, I don't think it has anything to do with the sin choice I'm making. I don't think there's, I, I don't see any connection between the two. But because you know how the Lord works, you're like, that's exactly what's going on. The Lord's trying to discipline you because you're rejecting him, you're rejecting his ways, and everything you're doing now is failing and going horribly. Why won't you turn to the Lord? If you're in that place of holding on to sin while the pressure just keeps building in your life, while things just keep getting worse and worse, you need to repent. And why wouldn't you repent? and experience the Lord's peace and the restoration of that relationship and his hand of blessing on your life. You gotta turn away from that sin, stop blaming people, stop blaming circumstances, confess your sin to the Lord, turn away from it, own it, admit that you're just reaping what you've sown and you'll experience the grace of God. Don't miss the big picture here, don't miss this. Don't forget what they did to Joseph. You know, at this point in the story, it's easy to just cast Joseph as, oh, he's the good guy, so he only does good stuff. But, but don't miss how incredible it is that he doesn't enact the vengeance upon them that would have been so easy for him to do. Don't miss how amazing it is that that's not anywhere in his heart. It's nowhere to be found, and it's not what's in the heart of our greater than Joseph, the Lord Jesus. He's not like you or I. He is not like us. He can't be compared to our standards of grace. His grace is so pure, it's so extravagant, it's so complete, the grace of God is just other. I don't have a better word for it than to say it's just other because Jesus is other. He's just not like us. He's gracious in a way that doesn't even make sense to us. And this grace is what you and I find waiting for us every time we come to Jesus. Every time we're back one more time to ask forgiveness for falling and failing into sin again. Every time that attitude creeps up in us that we thought was long gone, and here it is, again, don't call it a comeback. We find grace over and over 
and over again because that's just who Jesus is. That's just who he is. He's other. Don't you just love that about him? Don't you just love that about him? There's no one like Jesus. No one. And it might seem like there's not a lot of practical application in today's study, but I don't know many things that you and I need to hear more than simply that God loves us. He wants a relationship with us, and if we've messed up, he wants to restore that relationship, always. I don't know many things more important to be reminded of than the glorious truth that the grace of God is scandalously generous and completely other. And the truth is that grace will not grab a hold of your life. Grace will not permeate your relationships, your marriage, your family, until you've experienced the grace of God for yourself. Because you cannot stir it up in yourself. It's what God pours upon you and pours out of your life. It's a grace that comes from the Lord that flows through you to others. It's not a grace that you give because it's not in you to give. So if there's not grace flowing in your life, let me suggest to you that you haven't been experiencing the grace of God for yourself. The solution is not to stand here and say, Lord, help me to be more gracious to people. The solution is to experience the grace of God for yourself, to take communion. And not just go through the motions or the ritual, but, but really think about what Jesus did for you and the difference it made. And just say, Lord, thank you for your grace. And just sit in it, just be in it, just thank him for it, just rest in it. Do that and you will find grace will begin to flow out of your life. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, if you abide in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. It'll just happen. If you abide in the grace of God, grace will flow out of your life. We've got a wonderful opportunity to do that right now in in praise and worship. So we're gonna pray, and I encourage all of you to take communion today. Pray where you're at. If you need to repent of something, repent of something. If you need to extend forgiveness, extend forgiveness. Don't take communion and hold unforgiveness against somebody. You can't do that. Forgive anyone you need to forgive. Let go anything you need to let go. Thank the Lord for his grace and just sit in his grace. Just sit in it and let it pour over you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you are other, that you are not like us, that you are gracious in in a way that goes beyond all human comprehension and understanding. Your grace is is limitless, God. And Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would meet us this evening with an experience of your grace, Lord God, that you would just remind us of what Jesus has done for us, how we've been blessed, how we've had that grace poured out upon us, Lord. Would you make it fresh again this evening? Would you make it new? And Lord, would you fill our hearts with your grace so that it can flow out of us to those around us, to our family, to our spouses, to those we work with, and to our friends, Lord. Pour your grace out upon us. We need it so much, Jesus. And then, Lord, I just ask, 
if there's any of us who are just in the place this evening where we are being blinded and deceived by sin, where we, we're being blinded from the fact that you are disciplining us and the pressure's turning up in our lives, Lord, would you give us eyes to see this evening if we're in that place that we might repent and turn to you and be healed and have that relationship restored, Lord God. Do your work in us, Holy Spirit. We love you, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.